This morning, the preaching of God's word comes to us from the letter to the Hebrews. And we will read Hebrews 1, and we continue on to chapter 2, verse 4. And there we read God's word as follows. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, He makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, you will, uh, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who who are to inherit salvation? Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received just retribution, How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Thus far the reading. Our text for the sermon this morning is from Hebrews 2, the verses 5 through 9, and in that text is quoted Psalm 8. And so we will now sing from Psalm 8, not Psalm 81, as it is in the book. The text for the sermon is found in Hebrews 2, the verses 5 through 9. 
And there we read God's word as follows. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him for, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Thus far. After the sermon, let us sing hymn 41, all three stanzas. Hymn 41 after the sermon. Brothers and sisters, in and of our Lord Jesus Christ. Suppose that suddenly an angel of the Lord would be standing among us with a special message from God. What would your reaction be? Would we not all be amazed and would we not stand in awe and trembling before God's majesty? I'm sure that such an appearance would leave a lasting impression. Now we all know that this doesn't happen anymore. The time when God sent his angels to bring his special tidings is a thing of the past. But in the days when it did happen, such an appearance had a great and lasting impact upon the people. When they were visited by an angel, they realized that in that heavenly messenger, they had seen a glimpse of God. And so no wonder the angels occupied a highly exalted position in their minds. Especially the people of the Old Testament considered these heavenly creatures superior to humans because angels were privileged to live in the Lord's presence. They functioned as a sort of shuttle service between God and us. Now the writer of the letter to the Hebrews begins by giving a lot of attention to the task of the angels and their position in God's service. And as he does so, he busies himself with showing the place and the function of the angels, not from the Old Testament, but from the New Testament perspective. His method is that one of comparing the angels to the Son of God, who was appointed heir of all things, and through whom the universe was made. That's how he started the letter. And the lesson that unfolds is this. Christ's coming into this world has changed the way we should view angels. Our relationship to Christ Jesus changes our understanding of them. Angels are not superior to human beings. Hebrews 1 verse 14 sums up their task as being ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation. And you see, that task description there in Hebrews 1 verse 14, right away aim or sums up the difference between angels and us. 
Angels are ministering spirits. They are servants. And God does not subject the world to them. The Father puts everything under the feet of his Son. And so we read that God subjected all things under Jesus. And thanks to that great act of God, you and I have hope again. For you see, in Christ our place before God has changed for the better. In Christ Jesus, God is mindful of us. And even though the Lord God made us for a little while lower, not less, but lower than the angels, all this has changed because of Christ. Through him, our position is once again placed above that of angels. Angels are ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation in Christ. And their task is to serve God and us. And therefore, the author of this epistle says, God did not subject the world to come to the angels, but to Christ. And so I proclaim to you God's word, how God subjects the world to come to Christ. And the submission is foretold in prophecy, and secondly, it's revealed in Christ Jesus. Now, Hebrews 1 highlights Christ's superiority to angels. The writer does so by quoting several Old Testament passages which he uses to point out Christ's divinity. Christ Jesus is the Son of God, the appointed heir of all things, and this unique Son of God outranks and he overshadows all the prophets. And so Hebrews 1, the verses 1 and 2 exclaim that in the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets in many ways and many times, but in these last days, the days in which you and I live, he has spoken to us by his Son. And it should not, therefore not surprise us, my brothers and sisters, that we are urged in chapter 2, verse 1, to pay more careful attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. Now, drifting away implies that we are in danger of losing what we have. When you're sitting in your fishing boat and the anchor lets go and you have no other things to make the thing go, and it drifts away from shore, then you say, that shore is getting out of reach. Well, similarly, if we do not pay close attention to what God's Son has told us and has to tell us, we neglect to our own hurt and the great message of salvation. It is getting out of reach. And so the, the author to this letter says, who will escape the repercussions of drifting away if we neglect that great salvation that we have in Jesus Christ. For God the Father speaks to us in and through his Son. And then, when we keep these things in mind, my brothers and sisters, we will not find it strange that we are warned to pay closer attention to the words and the ministry of our Savior. For this Son of God is not just anyone, now he is superior in all things and to all things, including the angels. But you see, there lies the rub. The Hebrews had no problem accepting that Christ was superior to the angels in his divine nature. 
Now, what caused the difficulty was the claim that the Son of God is also man. And so they think it was sort of like this. If Jesus is man who suffered and died, how can he be superior to angels? Well, that is what the writer of this letter is going to demonstrate from Psalm 8. But before he gets to that proof, he reminds us of why he is making the comparison of Christ to the angels. And the reason is because he is speaking about the world to come. He says, it is not to angels that God subjected the world to come, about which we are speaking. But where was he speaking about the world to come? Did this just come out of the blue? Where did this idea of the world to come suddenly come from? Did the author mention anything like that in chapter 1? And the answer is yes, he did. In chapter 1, verse 14. Because there he said that angels are ministering spirits sent to serve those who, and here it comes, those who will inherit salvation. And that means that salvation looks beyond the world of today to the world to come. We are reminded that life on this earth is only temporary and that the salvation we receive in Christ Jesus is to make us worthy of life with God in the new world. And so the coming age ushers in salvation in its fullness and in all its glory. But at the same time, the effects of salvation is not limited to the future. Now, the effects of salvation are here already now. The effects of salvation are known and felt already now and have a bearing on what we do today and who we are today. And that is why we hear the warning in verse 3, how shall we escape God's punishment if we neglect such a great salvation preached in Christ? You see, the Son of God came into this world to be our Savior. And the world to come has already then, in a sense, made its first appearance with Christ's first coming. The fact that the Lord Jesus Christ came into this world is already the first step for the new world to come. And now it is important for us to realize that this, in our present situation, should also determine how we live and how we function. For let's say, for a moment, there's a crisis in the Middle East. It's been going on for a long, long time. And what I mean is this. There might be peace at the moment and that there's no fighting necessarily, but... You see, that crisis is more than the struggle over a piece of land. Now, it is a struggle between nations whose religion is not Christian. The Jews say that Jesus is not really the Christ because the Christ is still to come. And Muslims say that Jesus is not the Savior, but he's one of the prophets, even of the lesser prophets. But the point is that for neither Jews or Muslims is Jesus the Savior. 
And yet that conflict that has been playing out in that region for decades and maybe centuries already, whatever word you want to use for that conflict, whether you want to use war or whatever else, it has to do with Christ. Because it is only Christ Jesus who can bring the real peace that gives peace to people in this life and in this world. And so the New Testament makes it clear that the first coming of Christ has brought all time and all history at crossroads. It has brought all of world history into a crisis. For you see, the gospel event of Jesus Christ calls all of history and casts all of history into a new light. Whether people want to acknowledge it or not, the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ to live and to die and to rise again, that is precisely the goal of all history. For God is busy putting all things under the feet of the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And now the point is in this chapter and in this text of our sermon today is that Christ has a special place here. God is not subjecting things to come to angels. And he does not place it in their hands or into the hands of people. Now he puts it into the hands of the Lord Jesus Christ. And through him, you and I become co-regents in the world to come. And so Psalm 8 is a prophetic prediction of that glorious event. It is a song that highlights God's majesty, but also our smallness. It is an ode to glory of God who transcends the heavens. So what are we in comparison to his majesty and glory? Compared to the vastness of the universe, we seem so puny and insignificant. And therefore, as in a state of amazement, the psalmist asks, what is man that God is even mindful of him? But David, who wrote this psalm, he knew his Bible, and therefore he also knew the answer. He says, God is mindful of us because he has given us dominion over the works of his hands. God has placed all things under our feet. And so you could say that Psalm 8 is in essence a song that authenticates our God-given creation mandate as you read it in Genesis 1. It goes all the way back to the time of creation. For Genesis 1 teaches that our task is to fill the earth and subdue it. God created us in his image and placed us in his created world to have dominion over all living things. And he made us a little lower than the angels. We were created to rule the created world under the king of creation. And David, who wrote Psalm 8, understood this charge very well. He was keenly aware that even though the fall into sin had come in between, it did not change God's purpose for us. And that is why God is mindful of us and cares for us. And you and I, my brothers and sisters, have no clearer proof 
that God is mindful of us than the coming of the Son of God as our Savior. For you see, his incarnation is the greatest and ultimate proof of our importance to God. For in the New Testament, Psalm 8 is repeatedly applied to the Lord Jesus. In fact, the Lord Jesus Christ himself quoted from the psalm to prove that he is the Messiah. You can read that in Matthew 21, verse 16. And likewise, the Apostle Paul explains in the Great Resurrection chapter in 1 Corinthians 15 that the prophecy of Psalm 8 about all things put under his feet finds its fulfillment in Christ. And similarly, Hebrews 2 applies Psalm 8 to Christ as the head of the new creation and the ruler of the world to come. Christ is the perfect man who came to restore us to be the image of God that was lost in the fall there in paradise. And so God reveals and displays his grand design by being mindful of us in Christ Jesus. Even the fact that God created for us Uh, that he created us a little while lower than the angels has its fulfillment in Christ, who, as you can read in verse 9 of our text, was for a little while made lower than the angels. Has that ever struck you? That Christ for a little while was made lower than the angels? Do you know how Christ was made for a while lower than the angels? What would your answer be if that question was asked? Well, God's faithful angels, they had free and ongoing access to God's holy presence. But Christ lost that access for the time being when he laid down his glory with which he had with the Father before the world was begun. And before he took on his human nature, you could say he lost access altogether when he hung there on the cross forsaken by the Father. But his his having been made lower than the angel was only for the time being. For that humiliation, when Christ was born, lived on earth, we call that this period of his humiliation, was followed by that period of exaltation when he rose from the grave. That humiliation was followed by exaltation. And he ascended into heaven. And now he is crowned with glory and honor and rules all creation from on high. And everything, therefore, is put under his feet, including the angels. In Christ, the mandate to rule for which we were originally created, my brothers and sisters, that mandate is restored again and never to be lost again. It is established and restored for eternity. And so we see, my brothers and sisters, how this scripture passage proclaims Christ's superiority over angels in his human nature. The world to come is given into the hands of the man, Jesus Christ. He fulfilled the creation mandate for us. And that is how in Christ the world to come is subjected to Christ and in him also to you and I. 
And so Hebrews 2 reminds us of our task and place in creation. Thanks to the work of Christ. This Bible book also reveals that Psalm, the message of Psalm 8 is timeless. On the one hand, I've said it already, it reaches all the way back to the time of creation of the first people and the mandate that Adam and Eve received there in paradise. But on the other hand, Psalm 8 also touches the future. It reaches ahead to the new world, which becomes reality for everyone to see when Christ Jesus returns in glory. And so complete salvation in all its fullness and glory involves that we will be placed above the angels and reign eternally with Christ over all creation. What a glorious task awaits us. We cannot even begin to imagine what it will be like. But it is promised. Through faith we share in the work of Christ and receive his crown of glory and honor. And everyone who knows Jesus as Savior may eagerly look forward to that glorious task. It is not to angels that God subjected the world to come, but to Christ. And in him, also to us. And that brings us then to the second point of the sermon. The subjection of the world to come is revealed to us in Christ Jesus. Now, when you read the text, you'll see that the text is also very realistic. The text also shows the reality of our present time. Because at the present time, we do not see everything subjected to Christ, it says. The world to come is not here yet in its fullness. We do not yet see everything put under Christ's feet, do we? In fact, we may well wonder if we will ever see that day and reign with him. For just look at the decline of Christianity and Christian values in our nation and in the world as a whole. Yes, just look at ourselves. Is there any indication that we will be in control of all things one day? Not in the least, is there? If anything, we are being controlled. All of us are subject to all kinds of happenings in life, including hardships and misery. We still reap the ill effects and the consequences of sin. Every one of us is subject to illness, to sorrow, or even tragedy. And so when you look at all these things, then you have to say, no, we are a far cry from seeing our created mandate restored to us. Nor do we see much of anything being subject to Christ, do we? The world is rife with godlessness, and we hardly escape its influence. It seems that we meet more people denying Christ's kingship than those who acknowledge it. We even find ourselves guilty of the same offense at times when we fail to acknowledge Christ as Lord of our lives. And that happens, doesn't it? Clearly, in this present age, the subjection of everything to Christ is still very much hidden. And Scripture warns us 
It will remain that way in this world. It's a sign of the times. So where does that leave us? Well, you see, what we read in the scriptures is not just pie in the sky. It's reality. Christ is the one who has redeemed us for new life with God. And in this world in which we do not yet see everything subjected to the Christ, there must be a place where that becomes visible. There must be one sure place where we can see the beginning of the submission to Christ. And that place, my brothers and sisters, is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. The church of Christ, when believers live by faith in the joy and the awareness of their salvation in Christ Jesus, the eye of faith perceives Jesus already crowned with glory and honor. He is our hope and assurance that everything promised in the gospel will be fulfilled. Oh, we may not yet see everything under Christ's feet, but with the eye of faith, we see Jesus, the man who came to, serve, to save. And we see him as the author and the perfecter of our faith, as we read about it in Hebrews 12, verse 2. And we see him as the one who has been revealed to us. We see Jesus with the eye of faith. And you all know that Jesus is the name by which the Son of God was known on earth when for a little while he was made lower than the angels. And we see him, first of all, as the man of sorrows who humbled himself and became obedient unto death. But his bitter and shameful death was really a supreme expression of his power. For we know that no one took that life from him he laid it down of his own free will. His death followed according to a predetermined plan for our salvation. And so he broke the bonds of death. He is the victor over sin and death, crowned with glory and honor. And now Jesus is Lord. And that has its implications, you see. Who is Jesus for you? And most people say, well, Jesus is my Savior. And that is a wonderful answer. He is. We only have one Savior, the Lord Jesus. But we must also worship him as Lord. Lord of your life and Lord of this world. For through him the world to come is already making its entrance into this present age. The same Jesus who died on earth is now exalted above all, and he is known by his people who see him in faith. So when we look at Jesus our Savior, we say there's first the cross, and then the crown. Calvary was the Savior's road to glory and honor. Well, Calvary is also your and my road to glory if we believe in the cross. Christ tasted death for us that we might be forever freed from the power of eternal death. 
And so we see Jesus, and let's keep on seeing Jesus as Lord. For in him we see the coming age make its appearance already now. Do we? How? What we do? Because you see, think about it. The Lord Jesus Christ makes his presence and his power known in our lives if we are doing things that we never did before. Namely, if we fight against our sins and struggle to replace that old nature with the new. And you can only do that in the power of the Spirit and if you know and believe that Jesus is the Christ. Now, in the Bible, my brothers and sisters, salvation is always salvation of the whole person. And part of our being saved by that gospel message is the saving of our minds, our understanding. The Apostle Paul urges us to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Romans 12, verse 2. And how does that good news of Jesus save our mind? Well, he first of all does so by putting us on the same side of God so that we will think to think after God, that we think the same things as God does. We want to know his will and understand his word. That first of all. But secondly, there is also the actual content of the gospel event shown to us that shows to us the goals of all God's revealed purpose. So what does that mean? Well, one of those revealed purposes, my brothers and sisters, is that God is putting all things under Christ. He makes his presence and its power known in our lives so that we look beyond the present to the world to come. And so we may live our lives in this world with the expectation of the world to come in its fullness. Oh, for the time being, reality shows that we still are lower than the angels. But the new world is on the way. And so if you ask the question that David did in Psalm 8, who are we that God is mindful of us? And the New Testament answer is, we are God's children, redeemed by grace in Christ, so that we may fulfill our original task of having dominion over all things. And so the new world is on the way. And in faith, we see Jesus crowned with glory and honor. And in that way, we see him as our guarantee The prophecy that all things will be put under our feet finds its fulfillment in him. And so it is not to angels that God is subjecting the world to come. Think about that. Not to angels. Now sometimes, my brothers and sisters, you see that in an advertisement, a little baby has died. Sad. And then you hear the people say, now there is another angel in heaven. That is not a promotion because we will be higher than the angels. God did not submit the or subject the world to angels, but to Christ. And in Him, 
to us. And the time is hastening when we are called to carry out our original creation mandate to perfection. And to that end, my brothers and sisters, we must in this life work and pray And we must do that in the here and now. Amen.